Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From the waters of the Dead Sea to the Orkney Passage in Antarctica, we find out about some great geological news. Whilst the Dead Sea may be called a Dead Sea, what's happening to the life of the river system that feeds it and the water levels in it is causing concern for scientists. Plus, we find out about some great work analysing the massive Kalkoura earthquake in 2016 and exploring Antarctica with Bodie McBoatface. Nestled between Israel, Jordan and Palestine is one of the lowest places on Earth. And I don't just mean uh, in a metaphoric sense, I mean literally. It's 430 metres below sea level the lowest point on Earth that you can reach without being underwater. And it's a fascinating area, a geographic nexus between a couple of different plates that are moving up and past each other, which have resulted in this unusual geological rift and the creation of a spectacular valley that culminates in what we call the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is a lake, effectively, or a sea, an inland sea, that's about 50 kilometres long and 15 kilometres wide. And it's called the Dead Sea because it is the end point for any water in the region. A lot of the water then from the tributaries of the Jordan River and the Jordan River itself all eventually flow down and into this little body of water. Because it's so low, it's natural that all the water flows towards it. But the problem is, once it's there, it has nowhere to go but evaporate. And because of its location, it also ends up with all the salty water running in towards it. And over time, this salinity is built up. It is the most hypersaline lake in the world with 34% salinity. Think of the ocean as salty when you take a big mouthful of seawater. The Dead Sea is about 10 times saltier than that which is spectacularly salty. In fact, it changes the density of the water so much so that it is quite possible to very easily float in it, which many tourists enjoy doing. And the Dead Sea is a fascinating place to visit, but it is under huge threat because as we've been observing over the last 70 years, the waters of the Dead Sea have been rapidly receding. And there's a couple of reasons for this. The first is obviously changing climate, which has included higher temperatures. And these higher temperatures have led to, well, more evaporation. But a bigger problem is actually more and more people are drawing from the Dead Sea or the tributaries of the Jordan River for crop irrigation and even desalination. So that previously very salty water is still being used. And that has also reduced, furthermore, the available water in the lake. And it has a compounding effect. Once there's less water going in, then it's easier for the evaporation to take hold. And the size of the Dead Sea has decreased pretty markedly over the largest last couple of years, which is not great. And it's not like we can rely on rainfall there because there's about, on average, 75 mils a year across the Dead Sea, which is not. Now, scientists have been studying the Dead Sea and have been drilling into the seabed surface to actually capture an interesting ecological insight into the whole region. Because much in the same way that we can drill for Antarctic cores, drilling in the seabed cores of the Dead Sea gives you a really interesting crystallographic view of what's happened, particularly by studying the salt concentrations in the cores. 
In 2010, a group of scientists from a various group of nations drilled about 1,500 feet deep underneath the seabed. And by doing so, they managed to extract core records dating back 200,000 years, capturing the, what happened not only to the seabed, but the environment around it. And it captures a lot of the climate history of this region. It's pretty much the best archive of climate history for the entirety of the Mideast. And that's absolutely fascinating. Now, new studies recently published in the journal Earth and Science Planetary Letters has been exploring what actually happened in that history. What can we learn about the cooling or the warming of the planet during that period and what it meant for the water levels in that lake? And what's really fascinating about the current core samples that they've been examining is about 115 to 130,000 years ago, there was an incredibly hot period of time. And this equates to uh, when the Earth's orbit brought temperatures about four degrees hotter than those of what the 20th century were. Actually, it's pretty much in line with what we forecast to be happening in the 21st century as climate change really kicks in. What happened in this incredibly hot period of time is that they scientists were finding 300 feet layers of very, very salt thick areas, which means that the actual lake water level itself was dropping to incredibly low levels, almost lower than what we have now, which is a fascinating and worrying forecast for the future. It shows that there was a basically a super drought during that period. Now, once the Ice Age came back around 115,000 years ago, uh, the glaciers further upstream started to become cooler and moister, and the moisture sort of passes through the, cl the climate loop, and it means that you get to pretty much nice and stable levels of lake better than what we had now. Now, also about 6,000 to 10,000 years ago, the just after the most recent ice age, when there was rapid warming again, there was also pretty low levels again, not quite as bad as now, but very low. So it shows that the level of this lake varies very strongly correlated with the changing in the temperatures globally, which makes sense for an tributary runoff. What's more interesting is what's going on inside the tiny fluid bubbles captured inside the salt. By looking at what was the chemical composition of these tiny bubbles of fluid inside the salt core rock, they can actually extrapolate back what the rainfall and flow-off runoff to the Dead Sea was like. So what they've seen in these super drought periods, both 10,000-ish years ago and 115,000 years ago, is that Rainfall declined by about 50 to 70% compared to today. That That's substantially uh, much worse than even our current forecast about what would happen to the lake. In fact, it even went down to as low as 80%, which lasted for a decade to centuries at a time. Now, these would be obviously more linked to atmospheric changes and flow patterns that are occurring further around in the larger environment. Uh, if there was less storms coming in from the Mediterranean, then obviously that would decrease rainfall. And obviously, higher temperatures mean more evaporation of moisture from the land, which is also not good. So both these things combined mean that when we see a large-scale warming across the planet, as we have in the past seen, uh, but when this instance with the man-made changes being caused by climate change, we're going to see an even greater decrease in runoff to the Dead Sea. And this is sad for the Dead Sea and for the environment, but it's absolutely critical and worrying for those who rely on water from the Jordan River or the River Basin and the Dead Sea for agriculture and just life. 
And in the next couple of years, to alleviate growing water shortages, countries like Jordan are planning to bring additional water in from the Red Sea for desalination and take the leftover brine, which is very, very salty water after being desalinated, uh, and dumping that into the Dead Sea, which introduces more water to keep that area alive, such as it is, or at least the river system functioning. And that's pretty much essential. So it goes to show that we can learn a lot about climate change by studying how the climate has changed in the past and what has happened to it. And for areas like the Dead Sea, there is a lot to learn about how great droughts can cause even greater disaster for our lakes and water water resources. And water will become, as it always has been, an essential source of life and one even more under threat. November in 2016, the South Island of New Zealand was rocked by a devastating earthquake. Unfortunately, this is the pattern of life for those living around the South Island, in particular at the moment, in the most recent years. But the 7.8 magnitude Kaikoura earthquake was particularly devastating for those in North Canterbury and Kaikoura who had their town cut off and a lot of it levelled. Now, fortunately, due to the great preventative and warning work and building codes, many people were injured in the Kaikoura earthquake. A lot of homes damaged, but a very small number of deaths, and that was quite good for an earthquake of that size. But what was most interesting, aside from this very large earthquake that occurred, some small tsunamis uh, going between 2.5 metres all the way down to 0.5 metres at the various coasts around it, was that the way in which the fault changed, moved and propagated was very, very complex and interesting. It wasn't the case of just one big shake and that was it. No, there was uh, earthquakes and aftershocks and tremors all the way up and down the fault line, travelling far and wide with a very unusual behaviour. And a recent paper published by GNS Science, the Geological and Nuclear Sciences Institute uh, in New Zealand, which is a crown, a government-owned research institution, together with universities from across the world, have been now studying all this wealth of data about what happened after this earthquake. Now, because of what has been happening in New Zealand, particularly after the large Christchurch earthquakes of recent memory, there's been a lot of very detailed instrumentation across New Zealand to study whenever an earthquake occurs and really get critical insights and data from each individual earthquake. And that's what's happened in this instance. It's an earthquake that pretty much occurred in the best possible way to be captured by a wide range of data. And that's meant a treasure trove of geological information for scientists to pour through. And this most recent paper published in the journal Science included 29 co-authors from 11 national and international institutions. And it used not just satellite radar imagery, field observations, GPS data, and coastal uplift. Now, what did all that data tell us? Well, on a large scale, it told us a few things. And a lot of these will have great impacts on how scientists will understand, model, and predict what will occur in future rupture scenarios. Because it has changed their understanding of the way in which this particular fault, and maybe others, operates. And so this study showed that parts of the South Island move up to 5 metres closer to the North Island, as well as being lifted up by about 8 metres at maximum. 
which is a large amount of shift from one individual quake, but it just goes to show the size of this particular event. Now, this major earthquake event, the 7.8 primary quake, caused about 12 major crustal faults. So it burst these faults and another nine lesser faults. There were, and there was also some slip seen across a couple of the other subduction zones, like the Hikurangi subduction zone plate boundary, which is about 20 kilometers below the coastline of the Marlborough and the North Canterbury region. And basically what happened with these all these ruptures is that the rupture started in North Canterbury and propagated for more than 170 kilometers along some of the well-known faults, but also along some faults that we weren't even aware of beforehand, which is quite alarming, but useful to now have captured. It also moved through two active fault zones, two different active fault zones, and ruptured faults in both North Canterbury fault zone and the Marlborough fault system. So when we think about faults, they're not actually just one big continuous line. They're broken up into segments that operate independently a lot of the time. And this fault, act, this, this quake actually caused a rupture, which bridged across those. Now, the largest movement during the quake occurred at the Kekarengu Fault, where pieces of Earth's crust were displaced relative to each other by up to 25 metres. That's a really big shift. Now, that occurred about 15 kilometers beneath the surface. So at a surface, the maximum rupture was about 12 meters of horizontal displacement. But still, that's very large movements that we're talking about here. And anything that happens below the surface is not just ignored and forgotten. That has really real impacts above ground. And what this has gone to show is that when you think about one individual quake in one region, the behavior as that quake's impacts spread through ruptures across the varying fault zones is not really well understood and hasn't been up until now as might actually happen. It's not just the simple case of one big shake and maybe some tremors as it dies off. No, it can cause a cascading impact of different behaviours across fault zones. And this complex and lengthy nature of the, of the rupture, it really hampered uh, original scientists' estimates and efforts about what was going on with this quake. Because they couldn't then understand why some of the other quakes that we were seeing were happening because it didn't make sense based on their previous understanding. Obviously, this impacts things like earthquake early warning systems as well as sizing and prediction. You can't have a seismic model that's too simple and restrictive. You have to consider a wider range of possibilities where ruptures propagate into other fault areas or even along lines that you weren't anticipating were even there. Now, this is not all bad news. By having captured the Kaikoura quake in such detail, we can actually get a great understanding of what's happening on this quake. And we can look at previous quakes that we have data for and analyze those better. And we can feed all of this into our understanding of future events, which helps scientists build up their seismic hazard models and change the way they have assumptions about multi-fault ruptures. GNS, who run the GNET website as well, are also analyzing what the future risks are particularly along the Kaukura Fault region and the central New Zealand region in particular. And at the moment, they're forecasting about a 15% chance of a magnitude 6 to 6.9 quake in the next month. But those probabilities have been going down and down over time. Now, that kind of figure is very, very important because that community preparedness and individual preparedness is one of the great learnings that New Zealand has taken over the last recent decade about how to deal with and cope with large changes after an earthquake.
and not only the visual main earthquake, but also the aftershocks that follow. So New Zealand has done a lot of good work to be prepared, and the scientists at GNS Science are doing even more research, deepen our understanding, and improve our models, so that when the next earthquake comes, we'll be even more prepared. time of the internet, you will remember the campaign run by the National Environment Research Council to name the UK's new polar research ship. And there were very famous names, Charles Darwin, Sir David Attenborough, and so on. But the one that struck the public's imagination was, of course, Boaty McBoatface. Now, unfortunately, for those of us who love internet memes, the ship was not named Boaty McBoatface. It was instead named after Sir David Attenborough, which, okay, fine, is a worthy recognition of his great contributions to science. Fear not, Internet. The Antarctic Bottom Water Research Vessel, which is an autonomous underwater vehicle of the Autosub Long Range class, has been named Boaty McBoatface. Now, it is a submarine, so calling it Boaty McBoatface is probably not 100% accurate for it. It should be Subby McSubface, but nevertheless, the sentiment is appreciated. Now, the sub named Boaty McBoatface will be on research ship, named after Sir David Attenborough, as it heads down to the Arctic. In particular, it will be joining a couple of other ships, such as the RSSS James Clark Ross, and it will be analysing the dynamics of the Orkney Passage, one of the deepest regions in the Antarctic Peninsula. In fact, it's 3,500 metres deep and 500 miles off the coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. And this little boatface submarine will be going to the depths of that trench and studying what is going on on the sea floor. Not only will they use instruments from the ship, instruments moored to the seafloor, as well as the actual measurements and video and other things taken from Boatick McBoatface. Now, scientists are very interested in what's going on there, because changing winds over the Southern Ocean might affect the seafloor currents, which carry the currents of the Antarctic bottom water. And that not only has impacts on the Antarctic, but it flows all the way up as the water travels on the way to the equator. And it thus changes the overall global climate patterns because the currents of the ocean and the circulation patterns across the world actually are very central to the total global climate model. So understanding how these waters are changing, particularly through the choke point on the Orkney Passage, is essential. And that means Bodie McBoatface is going to be doing some great work on the cutting edge of science. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Studying droughts of the past to learn about the future from the Dead Sea, plus analysing the earthquake in 2016 in New Zealand and what it might mean for future quakes, and exploring the Antarctic with Bodie McBoatface. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.